Turn with me to Psalm 38. We are doing part two of Psalm 38, 22 verses. I thought it would be good just simply to read through the psalm and we'll finish the second half of it tonight. <coughs> o Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, your hand presses me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor health in my bones because of my sin. For iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. My loins are full of inflammation. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and severely broken. I groan for the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desires before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones, my friends stand aloof from my plague. My relatives stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I'm like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, whose mouth there is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest I, they rejoice over me lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous. They are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. David is very straightforward, much like the Bible is. As we said last week, you know, the one thing about the Bible that separates it from a lot of different kind of books, and really one of the ways I think you can tell that it's divinely inspired is it's blatantly honest about the state of man. It doesn't uh, make excuses. It doesn't whitewash anything. It doesn't make the heroes of the Bible less than they are. There are a few men that no negative things are said of them. There's nothing recorded of them doing something that was blatantly grievous to God, such as Joseph. He had a blameless record. Daniel had a blameless record, as scripturally speaking, but they were still men of like passions. They made mistakes, they sinned, they fell short of the glory of God. But then there's people like Jacob who, you know, he's all over the map. I can relate to guys like that. <laughs> and then there's, you know, Peter's, impulsive, quick to do this, quick to do that, talk before they think. You know, there's all, the Bible's clear. 
And then it also records things that are not very nice. Things that were done to people. Despicable things. And so we know that God is the author, but he wanted us to see humanity and all of its ugliness, as well as in all of the mercy and grace that he has towards humanity. You know, the thing about this, we know that we can gather from this that God is not unaware. He knows our state. He knows our frame. He's not surprised when we blow it. Wow, I didn't know he was going to do that. That never enters God's mind. He knows who he's working with. And he's made, fortunately, he's made provisions for our failures, our sins. And so there's no question about what's going on in this psalm. David is feeling the pain of guilt through his sin. He knows that his affliction that he's presently experiencing has been brought about through his disobedience and his rebellion against God. His sin has led to this affliction in his life. And so David uh, is confessing, he's praying, he's seeking the Lord. And that's one thing about David, he, as we've said this before about him, he is able to capture his inner thoughts and express much of what we ourselves experience. And in this case, guilt. Be it joy, be it guilt, David is right there. He's got a way of putting forth the emotions in descriptive way that we can all relate to. And so, you know, as we pointed out last week, he didn't want the Lord to reprimand him sharply. Don't rebuke me in your anger. And don't raise your temper towards me. I know I've sinned, you know. And isn't isn't that what we want? (laughs) When you... You know, the last thing after you've blown it is you want someone, like, just laying it on you. And then you think, when they do that to you, you think, you just wait till you do this and I'm going to get you back, you know. You know, we just, that's just something we don't appreciate. And he has this in his relationship with the Lord. Just, I know I deserve it. I, I don't think he's trying to get out of that aspect of it. He's owning it. We'll see here. But he's just, that's how he begins this penitent type psalm. And, you know, he feels the pain. He owns his mistakes. We kind of went through all this, verse 4 and verse 5. He's wounded. It's affecting him physically. It's affecting him mentally. I mean, verses 6 through 8, I mean, he just lays it all out there. And sometimes we go through these trials, and they are the refining fires of God. They're the things that God uses to to sort of round out the rough edges of our character to make us more like Christ. Nothing gets my attention more than pain. When I'm going through pain, whatever part of my body is feeling it, it's got my undivided attention because I want to relieve myself from that pain. And it's no different in our spirit. God allows these things to happen and when we feel pain we come to Him. And I think that's, that's the thing that separates a believer from an unbeliever. You know, when we, and I, this is important here, uh, believers sin, unbelievers sin. The difference is there's guilt. It, well, there's guilt in both parties. The wicked feel guilt. 
the righteous feel guilt when they sin. But that guilt in the believer brings remorse and brokenness where I bring it to God and I want to deal with this. And I know how God will deal with it. He will forgive me and he'll renew me and he'll strengthen me and set me back on the path, that highway of holiness. Unfortunately for the wicked, they, have that, they don't have that option. They will suffer the effects of unconfessed sin. And that is the hardening of the heart. In fact, well, that can happen to a believer if he refuses to deal with it. And so uh, this is um, David explaining and praying through uh, God's correction in his life. So if, you know, this is a helpful psalm for us. Because between, just mark my words, (laughs) it's not that I'm a prophet here, but (laughs) you're going to sin before you get to heaven, I'm pretty sure. And so how do you deal with your failures? How do you deal with sin in your life? Well, David kind of just lays it out here, a little template on how to, how to deal with it. And I really appreciate that. And um, this last part has a couple different prayers. And he finally, after sort of bemoaning his physical pain, his emotional pain, and his anguish, and con- the condemnation, really, that he's feeling in his soul, he he comes to verse 9, is where we'll pick it up here, and then he just you know, sort of collapses under the weight of it all. Lord, <laughs> all my desires before you. You know, he just, you can just see his arms, you know. <laughs> Don't you love body language? David, <laughs> he, he's just sighing <laughs> here. My sighing is not hidden from you. Don't you like little people in this area? When they're disappointed, my my little grandchildren are classic. Something gets disappoints them. <laughs> Shoulders come in, arms go down, head drops, bottom lip comes out. Tremendous drama. <laughs> drama. You know, he. We all know that getting traumatic with God doesn't really help you. I don't know what we think we're going to gain by that. And of course, little people don't realize that it's really not going to... It's about the only thing it gains from them is a chuckle out of their parents. (laughs) But we were all there that one time, (laughs) right? But I think it's important that when we... Because sometimes we're not aware of our own body language. But we should be attuned to it, actually. You know, like when someone is bringing some stuff to your table that you're really not happy about, what happens to the neck? Hey, we just hold on there, buddy. You know, you, you you know, and then when we refer to someone as being stubborn, we call them a stiff neck, right? And that's what we do. We just sort of tighten up a little bit. Here he's talking about panting, <sighs> sighing. My heart pants. You know, there's that... Again, he's talking about that emotional struggle within. And the sighing. So you ever catch yourself sighing? (sighs) Not again, right? Something's not going quite right when you're sighing. And so when you have these moments, it's time to take inventory. Okay, why am I sighing? Why does my heart feel this weight? And I begin to do the self-examination. And David puts it out there. And then verse 10, he, he's really describing it. 
you know, has for the light of my eyes that's also gone from me. You're, you're no longer optimistic. You become that half, the glass is now half empty. You're, you, ha, you develop a pessimistic view. You're not looking at potential. You're looking at negative, everything negatively. Why You're headed down a, 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 the road of despondency, actually. But this is what guilt, this is what sin, you know, it goes from despondency to throwing your courage out the window. You just don't, um, your drive is gone. And then everything you look at looks like a mountain. Things intimidate you that otherwise, when you're not dealing with this, it's, oh, it's not a problem. I'll get there. I don't really like it, but I can do, I can deal with this. But when you're not in the right frame of mind, then you're intimidated by it. When you're intimidated by something, you just usually back off. So David's explaining this depression in verses 10 through 14. His friends are detached. Now, why do, why do people withdraw when people are going through these things? Well, first of all, who wants to be around somebody that's depressed? You're going to bring me down, right? We just naturally want to, you need to get that worked out, bro. I mean, we just sort of, we don't want to be around people that are bummed all the time, depressed. Because it's sort of, we know what it's like when we get there and we just don't want to go there. So maybe that's what's going on here. Let's just, he's in a grouchy mood. Let's just stay away from him or whatever. But he Part of that is when you're in that depression, is you're you can't get off this you can't get off this horizontal plane. You're just looking this way, and does God even exist? Because you're so, you know that you're wrapped up in that real small package of self. It's really difficult, and it leads to isolation. Do you understand? These are the these can become the stronghold of the enemy. We're not to be controlled by our emotions. We're not to let the guilt have rule over me. This is what he said to Cain. Sin lies at the door. You must rule over it. Deal with it. And he's going to have some strong language for here for us a little bit later in regards to that. His relatives are at a distance. And of course his enemies. They're just loving this. Doesn't the enemy love this? When we're down, now I can really work them. I've been really wanting to pay them back for all the good they've been doing anyway. And so he's, just, he's right there. The spiritual warfare rages, you know. They seek his life. They want to harm him. They're plotting against him. Now, I want to say something along this line here in these verses. Some of this could be real in David's life. I mean, when you're a leader, you're, not everybody likes you. No matter how charismatic you may be, and David was a very charismatic individual, very sanguine, I believe. And there, so not everybody likes that kind of personality. Not everybody loved David. A lot of people did, and God did, and does. But when you're going through depression, and you're going through this, and you feel isolated, not everything you think is accurate. Some of this in David's mind could just be perceived. I mean, he's sort of like, thinking this but and we start hearing these lies you know well, they're probably oh look at their they're, 
whispering. They're probably talking about me. And, you know, we've just got this whole thing going on and we're stuck in our own little echo chamber. It's just, and, and I'm probably not, you've never had this experience, have you? <laughs> of course you have. It's known, it's, it's what people do when we have sin to deal with in our lives. And he finally gets through this and, and it brings him to his end. He just goes quiet. He doesn't know what to say. I mean, what do you say? He, I think he goes silent because he doesn't know what to do with it. And that's really the state of the natural man. We do not know how to deal with guilt. There's nothing within human nature that has the capacity to remove guilt. You can't do it. Only God can remove guilt. Isn't that amazing? Now, we don't ever, you ever think about that thought for a moment? That specific thought. Only God can remove guilt. You could, you could give all the rest of your money that you're ever going to earn the rest of your life to charity. You could spend, give all your goods away. You know, as Paul said, give your body to be burned, you know. And that would not remove your guilt. Only God can remove guilt. And so he doesn't know how to handle this. He can't, he doesn't like this horizontal atmosphere that he's in at all. Now, of course, we wonder, man, David, what? You know, he's just describing all this depression and all these things that have been going on in your life. What in the world did you do? <laughs> we have these ideals, you know, oh, he's a man after God's own heart. Yeah. But he also blew it on occasion. And seeing that should give you hope, gives me hope. So what did David do? I don't know. Was it something to do with Uriah's wife? Possibly. Was it something to do with taking a census? And the judgment of God was falling. That would be Second Samuel 24. He does say in Second Samuel 24, 14, to the prophet who's confronting him over the sin of taking the census, which Joab told him, you won't want to do this, Dave. I'm telling you, you don't want to do this. Just get out there and do it. And then the Bible says that, that David felt remorse. He felt condemned after he had done it. And then he's confronted the next day after the sin is complete by Gad. That, and he said, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. And so he was offered three things, if you remember the story. And so he, he took the Lord's wrath rather than what men might do to him. But this is what sin does. It brings distress. It's not something we should play with. Sometimes we have a romantic view like, well, it's not really that big a deal. I'll just confess it and God will forgive me and I'll just be fine with as we move along here. No. This is something we should face. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And so don't, uh, don't gamble with grace that isn't grace there's a price tag to every sin in verses 15 through 20 
he, he again realizes in his silence, look, there is no other place for me to go. And when you sin and I sin, there's no other place to go but to God. For in you, O Lord, I hope, you will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves. So when you're hoping for something, what does that tell us? It has not yet arrived. What you want and what you think you need and what you perceive is something that God wants to give you, that, that means you're waiting for it. And if you have read enough Psalms to know that David, that's one thing David had down. He mastered this in his life. He knew how to wait upon God. When things didn't go quite right, he would pause, he would wait. You know, think about, think about for a moment, he was a young man, possibly 14 or 15 when he was visited by Samuel the prophet. When did he actually become king? He knew that was his destiny. He knew that was the call of God. He actually waited almost probably two decades before all of Israel came under his rule because he, he was 30 but then he had to wait seven more years before the other tribes sort of got it to figure it out. Almost, you know, two decades of waiting for God to fulfill what his purpose was. But waiting on God is a very important. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a demonstration of faith. And so, verses 16 and 17, he, he realizes that he's vulnerable. And so he's bringing this vulnerability. Not only does sin make him personally vulnerable and depressed and all those things, but, I mean, he will not be able to function publicly. He will not be able to interact with people correctly. He'll, he'll misperceive things from other people. He's, and, of course, it's, a, it's weakness. It, it's a weakness in a person's life to, not, to deal with sin. You never will be at full strength when sin is dominating your life. And so he understands there that he's vulnerable. The, some of these things that he mentions about his enemies here, he's already mentioned them previously in the first few verses of the, of the psalm. And this is important. He's just blurting it out to himself. He's probably walking around and just having one of those pity parties and he's just blurting all this stuff out but now the difference between these two saying it one there he's now talking to God about it he's now verbalizing it to God and I think this is important you can't just think certain things sometimes we think well if I'm thinking it that's praying it it's not there's a difference between thinking you're you know about well I wish the Lord would do this or instead of just asking him for it, there's a big difference. And we are to state what we need to state. Pray out loud. I think praying out loud is important. Now, you don't have to pray out loud in public, but you should be praying out loud as a good thing to do. You can keep things together, at least I can, uh, by doing that. And so... I think that's important. One of the things you kind of pick up from this little section too 
is that nobody likes when they're being made fun of or nobody likes to have their nose rubbed in it. You know, gloating. People gloat over you when you make a mistake or whatever. And you know what? God doesn't either. You know, it says in one place, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. You know, why not? <laughs> they deserve it, you know. I mean, that's how we would think naturally. Just, yeah, about time, you know. I mean, that's how we think. We all, I, I do. I mean, I want them to feel the pain. You made life miserable for me. You were mocking me, so we're right back at you. But that's not how God wants you to look at it. That's not Christ-like. That's not godly. God doesn't ever want humankind to gloat over one another's failures because he understands the pain and the sorrow and the hurt and the damage that it does. And that's not something to be laughing about. And God help us not to do that. We should be filled with compassion when we see someone exactly a train wreck uh, emotionally or, or their life. We should break our hearts uh, as it does God's. Verse 18, he confesses it. And this is the biggest, the, the turning point in our walk, in our lives. is when we can actually tell God exactly what we feel, tell him exactly what we've done, and we own it. Because until we get to that bottom line of truth, God can't help us. There are certain people God cannot help. And it's the person who will not own their sin. They will not confess it. They won't acknowledge it. They're never wrong. But David's, he's not one of those. He confesses and there in verse 18, I will declare my iniquity. I will anguish over my sin. There's that remorse that's so important in our lives. Verse 19, again, he's aware of the enemy. You know, sometimes we forget in our failure, Satan just doesn't step back and gloat. Well, he does. They're snickering and laughing at us all the time because of our, we're weak in that regard. But sometimes we forget that we are in a battle. And I'm spiritualizing this a little bit. They are strong. Vigorous. Strong. They hate me wrongfully. You just think about, do you think the devil's got any good in him? He has, there's, there's not one ounce of love in his being. It is psychopathic hatred to the nth degree. It's evil beyond evil that we could never comprehend. He takes joy. His joy is in gloating, in punishing, in making feel, people feel the guilt of their sin. He wants to use that guilt to destroy all humanity. And that's what sin will do. If it's left unchecked, it will destroy us. And so, understand, and as David did, there's, there's a spiritual warfare going on. I actually think that guilt in the Christian's life, if there's a moral failure, when someone gets sideways morally and they really just fall off the, the wagon, so to speak, and really just blow it, I think the guilt that they feel is heightened 
It's, it's greater than the wicked because the wicked have been hardened. They're just continuing re- repeating things over and over and they're, they're hardened. But when someone does something like that, as a believer, I think the, the spiritual warfare is highly intense. And the shame is just magnified. And I actually think that there have been Christians who have committed suicide over sin. I had a dear friend of mine a number of years ago. Had a moral failure. Had only been, he, he grew up in a Christian home, walked with the Lord, and you know, went to college, got sideways a little bit. And then he, you know, straightened up, married a really wonderful lady, had a couple children, gets involved in drugs, repents, comes back to the Lord, reconciles with his wife. And then after a couple years, he just, wrong situation, he just totally failed. And he couldn't handle it. I couldn't reach him. Broke my heart. He took his life, and his parents couldn't reach him. He had resolved that he'd broken God's commandments, and the shame and the guilt. And so this isn't so. Sin is nothing to play with. The enemy is there to destroy. And David ends where uh, we should all end. He seeks the Lord. And one of the things that, as you have listen to this and as you we've read through this is that when David owns his sin it's 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 no different than what God did with Job. Job was a mortal man and he had sin in his life although what was the trial he was going through was not because of his sin it was just an all out assault by the enemy. But when God confronted him because he didn't understand but he acted like he did understand and he he had some pride there that God needed to deal with. But if when you look at chapter 37, what is he said? Gird yourself like a man. Stand up in the dignity in which I have created you. And we're going to talk. And you're, I'm going to answer, ask you some questions. And you will answer me. We have an authoritarian father in heaven who acts towards us in love. And how we handle our sin and our failures says a lot about our character. But... But we can actually honor God if we handle ourselves appropriately. It isn't the self-pity, woe is me, and well, you know, excusing ourselves for who we are because we're all, after all, we're just human, you know. No, it's really seeing it for what it is and coming before God and owning it and being upright. And Lord, we're not going this way anymore. I need your power. I need your strength. That That's the kind of thing that we see in David's Psalm here. It's a powerful song. Psalm. I mean, he's described the guilt and the pain of guilt, and yet he comes to God. Verse twenty-one. Do not forsake me. Everybody else has, and you probably should, Lord. But I know that you love me, and don't ever forget that, because the last thing you have trouble accepting after you've blown it and you've, you're by yourself and you're isolated when someone comes up and tells you, you know, God loves you. You, you don't believe, you, it's like it's hard to receive that, isn't it? 
<laughs> Why? Why would God love me? I'm a, I'm a train wreck. I, I've sinned. I've totally blown it. I'm, you know, and, and of course the enemy would tell you, of course you're done. God's done with you. He's sick and tired of you falling, bemoaning yourself, blah, blah, blah. Do not forsake me, O Lord. He knows in his heart that God is merciful. And that's something we should remember. God is merciful. And he prays for God to help. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me. Now, again, I, w- I'm, I was a parent. I guess I'm still a parent, technically. I'm pretty much done doing that, but as I was parenting, my wife and I were parenting our children, God was parenting me. And I have to, and it, that helps me. It helped me to be a better parent. I realized, you know, how, does, how do I deal with this, Lord? I mean, like, I'm really angry right now, but I need mercy. But there's got to be some payment for, this is, this is a real direct disobedience. I can't just let it slide. That's not grace. But, you know, you know, and you have to kind of think about how God deals with you. And he's merciful. But he doesn't compromise. He doesn't have a romantic view towards it. He's going to tell it like it is, and he's going to make you own it, you know, that kind of thing. And so we go through that. And that's what David has come to. God help me. And when you're broken and you've, I think, the, <laughs> he knows that we're, our frame. <laughs> he knows we're but dust. We just need to be real. And that's really what he's looking for. <laughs> I mentioned this before, but sometimes I I think if I can just say the right things, if I can just confess it and just tell it like it is enough, it'll go away immediately. But sometimes there's a lingering effect. I'm forgiven. And this is the part that sort of we have to live with when, with sin. When we get to this point and we're asking God to, to come to us and to help us, and he does and he removes the guilt, there's some lingering effects emotionally from the guilt. And so we, we're, we're shaken. Our spirits are shaken from it. I don't like that feeling. I don't want to experience it. And I want it to be... When I confess my sin, I want the the effects that I've been feeling from it to be gone with it. But sometimes it doesn't always go that way. But as I continue to obey and I renew my mind and I allow the Spirit to take the Word of God and wash me once again, that's why devotions are so important. Spending time alone, allowing the Word to come in and just wash you. You're clean through the Word. You just feel the cleansing power and the restoration that happens when we're reconciled to God. So, ending with this verse in Hebrews. It's a great verse. Let us, this is Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts 
sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You know, those Old Testament sacrifices, the old idea of laying your hands upon the animal and live, fully conscious animal, innocent. And then you lay your hands on the head of that animal and the priest who was no more, he was a butcher. That's pretty much what the Levites were. They butchered under the neck, catch the blood, and then that animal would fall. And your, your laying hands would transfer your guilt onto that animal and that guilt would become the sacrifice and the covering for your sin. And, that, and then there's the washing of some of the sacrificial parts and then the placing upon the altar. You know, we don't have to go through that ritual, thankfully. Jesus went through it once and for all for us. But sometimes we miss the idea of being washed with pure water. The Holy Spirit, He just has a way of regenerating and cleansing, and we are so clean. So this should convict us, obviously. This should explain the, the severity of sin, but then the power of God's mercy and His grace and his forgiveness to take it all away as far as the east is from the west. I'm so glad that our Father in Heaven, our God, is a forgiving God because we need it daily. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for David. Thank you, that, Father, that you gifted him with words to capture what was going on in his soul, in his spirit before you, so that we could obviously relate, but also understand how you dealt with him, you'll deal with us in a merciful, gentle way. And so, Father, we ask that you would keep us from sin first and foremost, that you'd fill us with the power of your spirit to give us the strength we need to overcome and to avoid. We just pray that you'll transform us into the men and women you have ordained us to be. Lord, that we might truly cleanse ourselves from all sin and receive the exhortation that we might be vessels for honor, cleansed and made useful for the Master's purposes. So we're giving you permission, Lord. Just continue to sanctify us Clean us up. Make us the men and women you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.